0: Years ago, I built a house for my family, and the house had a couple bedrooms, and it had an upstairs. And off of the kids' bedroom, there was an area that we built, and it was a loft, and it was a play loft. It was up above uh, another bedroom, but in that area, which was up high in their room, there was a door and the door was always locked and the children never knew what was behind that door. And they never asked either. But behind it was the attic. It was an entrance to the attic of the house. So I always left the door locked because I didn't want the kids to go in there and, and you know, step somewhere they shouldn't and fall through the drywall. You know, that would have been bad all the way around. So <clears throat> one day I'm I'm downstairs and I hear the kids going, Whoa, this is cool. Look at that. What's all this pink stuff? And I and I go up there and I had been working in the attic and I forgot to lock the door and somehow they were up there playing and they open the door and all of a sudden they see this world they'd never seen. They see these two by six wooden rafters and they see this pink insulation that looked like this playground, this pink playground, you know, the plan and they see wires and they see plumbing vent lines and and they see this stuff they'd never seen before. That was all part of how a house is made. Now, when I built that house, I wasn't wanting to, you know, you, you live in a house so that you can have a home, and, and the home is so that you can love each other and so you can nurture each other and you can share and grow and, and raise your family. And, and so a, a house is the physical structure, but a, a home is the purpose of the house, right? And so in this moment, the kids were fascinated by seeing this part of our home that they'd never seen, the house, the structure, the behind the scenes. And whether or not they'd ever opened that door, it has to be there. Any house, whether it's in Michigan or Minnesota or Missouri, has to have certain things that hold it together because that's how a house is built. That's how the architect or the builder has to build it or design it. And so in this moment of time, my kids are realizing they, there was this whole aspect of their home they'd never seen before. Well, the Word of God is is our spiritual home. It's, it's the thing to nurture us. It's the thing to bring us to God. But because God is an amazing architect and because these Hebrews had a way of architecting and designing their language, the authenticity of it is like the house, the structure, the poetic aspect, the um, parallelisms, the chiasms, all these things that were part of the Hebrew way of conveying understanding was built into the Bible because that's how the people spoke. Well, the amazing thing is the same evidence The same architecture, the same behind-the-scenes rafters and pink insulation, all this stuff of the Bible, you can find in the Book of Mormon. Scholars will scrutinize the Bible and try to understand nuance of words and language and put it in the time and perspective. And what I've found is that the Book of Mormon can be held up to the same scrutiny because it was the same and even better than some of these writings because it didn't get translated. But what I'm scared of talking about is it's opening the door to that attic because I feel like God gave us his word in the Book of Mormon to be a spiritual home, and we don't want to miss that point. The point is we weren't supposed to live in the attic and admire the rafters. The point is we are supposed to live in the love of the home and, and, and live for the purpose it was given, right? So today um, we're going we're to cautiously open that door and see what's behind in the attic, see what the designer did, see how he built this thing, and we're going to find it's an amazing word. It's amazing structure he's given us.
1: Welcome to Restore Gospel Podcast. Hey, welcome back. I'm Mike Barrett. I'm Gory Stark. We are two friends having casual conversation about the things of eternity, and we welcome you into that conversation. Well, um... As is the case, Corey and I have not recorded for a bit of time, and we are back together today. It's a Sunday afternoon, and he looks sharp all dressed up here in his <laughs> nice sports jacket. I, I'm glad he's dressing up to come see me now. Yeah. It's about time. slouchy kind of slouchy lately, but uh, uh. We, um, we're here because we love... We try to love our Lord as best we can, and though life gives us ups and downs, I think Corey and I were talking this week, and I said, you know, it's hard to persevere sometimes. You know, we all have up up, up and downs, and I think any person that's been in the ministry for a time, uh, whether you're man or woman, whatever ministry you provide, sometimes you're called on to testify of Jesus, whether it's teach a class or just uh, share with a friend. And when you're going through life's struggles up and down, it's hard sometimes to— I guess, be that person that you want to be to other people. Um, It's hard to minister sometimes. And uh, I guess it's at those times where we have to put feelings aside and rely on the knowledge that we have of God Mm -hmm. and the knowledge that we have of Jesus. And that's when we have to rely on His Word. And so if we haven't spent our life training our mind and treasuring up the Word and the promises and believing and seeing the testimonies through time of God's compassion and love on His people— then the ideology of the world enters in and it wins. Mm. And so we were we were talking this week, you know, about how like in our personal lives, when I'm struggling, when you're struggling, when when we're dealing with some burdens, um, how it's hard to come down and talk about uh, the Lord and what's going on in our lives. And if if people think that every you know podcast we put out that you know it's been stellar week, you know, up until the recording time, <laughs> <laughs> that's not the oh, case. Oh, we've man. we've We've met in prayer, I know, and we've we've had trials, but we try to uh, continue to do what we're doing. And uh, by the way, hey, fiftieth uh, episode aired. I get a little shout out from our host that was said congratulations on your fiftieth episode. And uh, Corey, it is pretty cool. We haven't missed a week since wow. we started. Wow. We didn't know what we were doing, but wow. we've persevered through through this year. I know it's been rough on you, brother, and, and uh, but we've persevered, and so. Here we are today because of our belief in the promises of Jesus, and um, don't know. I asked my wife today. I'm like, "What do I do after a kind of a downer day today, a downer service?" And I thought, "What? Well, how do we? How do we just go on?" And she goes, "Well, you just believe in Jesus and trusted him." And I thought, "Ah, oh, I love the way your mind works." But for me, it's like I gotta have something concrete, you know, yeah. something to dig into. Yeah. Right? But uh, Corey, tell me, you you said you taught a little, did some teaching today? Well, yeah, tell me about that, man. You feeling well,
0: good? Well, it, it did feel good, and and I've had a little hiatus, and it's actually been welcome because of so many things I've been interested in studying, and not that teaching a class ever takes away from that, but I, um, I don't know, I've just enjoyed some kind of time by myself to study and get into the word, and you know, I I came from an uplifting service, and I'll just tell you a little bit about it, and it was uplifting for some reasons I wasn't even anticipating um <clears throat> a, a brother spoke who um just just to mention him and if if he's ever a listener he he may know this but this is a total compliment to him I've, I've always ad- admired his faith and perseverance in the word um he was he was born and at an early age had uh, rheumatic fever and the the uh, disease um, affected his his speech more than anything but it uh, it causes him uh, he he's a minister and faithful but it causes him to, to sometimes have to stutter and repeat. And, um, for some people who don't know him, you know, it may be kind of something where it's like, oh, it might be hard to listen to someone speak for a long time like this, but, but he's, he's passionate about the Lord and the word. And he, he shared a sermon today and, uh, for years he didn't want to, speak from the pulpit or do anything in public really because you know however he may have if he whether or not he felt self-conscious i can't say that but it was just one of those things where you didn't see him in the in the public light so much he was always someone who wanted to work in the background but but he spoke today and he he said i want to tell you about a conversation with a person and he's talking about this person who was confessing how they, they sort of lived a closet center life they would come to church but you know uh, but they had hidden sins and they they were seemingly involved in the life of the church but yet they had this dark side and he he's he's telling about this conversation and how this person ultimately needed to come to the Lord and repent and and as he's getting through this and it's it comes across slow and broken because of this but in the end, he goes, I have to tell you, this conversation was the conversation I had with myself. Mm. And it was just, it was beautiful. And it was very, um very wow. meaningful that, um, you know, he would be so vulnerable and share that. And it's like, man, Mike, when it comes down to it, that's just the, the message we all need to hear is that we are, whether we're closet sinners or hidden sinners, that we need to come to the Lord. And and he has the solution. He has the answer. And is he, you know, we can experience the justice of God, but we can experience the mercy of God.
1: Well, anyway, brother, um, you gave a wonderful story at the beginning of the podcast about your house and building your house. And, uh, let's, let's talk about that a little bit And this, this Hebrew poetry and Book of Mormon and how it's proper place and why is it important? Why, you know, how do we not focus too much on it? How do we use it in its proper perspective? And what is it going to mean for the the Hebrews and those of a Hebrew descent when they look at it and see uh, some of these things that you're discovering and they've obviously discovered as well already. So as a parent, it was probably a, a joy for you to stand there with your kids and be like, yeah, because you, you experience that they're seeing this, the behind the scenes, if you will, like, Oh my gosh, you know, and you probably see through their eyes, the wonder of rafters and pink insulation and everything. But you know, if, if all your kids wanted to do was go up and play in the attic, you know, all day long, and like not have dinner with the family and not come back down, then it would it would be like, well, the attic's taking them away from me, right? right so right, exactly it has to have its exact place. But boy, when you do step into that behind the scenes, it's almost like, wow, like this house, there's a lot more to it than I thought. But yeah, isn't it crazy how we can uh, make that then our master or our our focus or our life's work to pursue, right, and it has to keep its proper place. Exactly. It would have been there.
0: Yeah, it would have been there whether they opened the door and understood it or not. Mm -hmm. But the point was they could have lived their whole life and benefited from the house and not known it was there. I, Like I said, I'm cautious about even opening up this subject because I really don't think— God's word was supposed to be scrutinized by us <laughs> we call ourselves scholars right, right. right. <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah god we'll we'll tell you about your word we'll figure it out you know and then we'll tell you what we think i mean oh my gosh i <clears throat> i feel bad for anyone who's going to stand before the lord someday and say i wrote a book you know analyzing the bible and oh yeah thanks for that but so <clears throat> but here we go in the in the book of mormon um it's it's just uh, amazing and its every word of it's true
1: but what so I appreciate your warning, uh, I, but to have its proper place, what's the benefit? um so different people will benefit in yeah, different ways. yeah so yeah. you you know, see someone like you and I that has that's a lifelong member. when you started sharing some of this, and I haven't heard it all. I'm looking forward to this, what's coming here in a, in a great way. when you share shared this with me, it wasn't like, okay, now I can finally trust the Book of Mormon. It was almost like I stepped back, and what it what it did to me, Corey, was like, I want to go read it again. Yeah, yeah. I want to go read it again and again because it just—it was like piling on faith, and, well, and it's like not only do I trust this, I really need to trust this. I—I I don't know. It was it's just like different. what I always
0: believed was true. Now, wow. It, yeah. It, it, there's no doubt, right? If there it was,
1: just just it just made me want to like he he put so much into it, made me want to go back to it, and and then you have groups like let's say there's there's a, a group of uh, of Hebrew or Jewish background. Uh, and they may have heard whatever they've heard about Mormonism or or polygamy or anything, anything, hundreds of things. They... They look at this kind of thing, is, and they see even probably more so than we would than exactly, nature, exactly. and so that could be a benefit to them uh, to help then open up for the real message. And that's
0: like, let's enjoy this house that God's built for you. He wants yeah. you to come in and right, you know. right. Hear about your heart yeah. needs to change yeah. because ultimately it's all that. It's like you say, you know, some people are they going to be brought in if you can find uh, proof through archaeology, for instance, of the Book of Mormon. Some people, well, yeah, maybe they'll believe it, but maybe, ultimately yeah. it's and this is the. Same way, you know, there they there will still be naysayers and doubters, um, but it it's amazing because here's something I think you and I chuckled over. I was reading a book that talked about how the inspired version of the Bible came to be and how there was a few different manuscripts and pieces and parts came together, and it wasn't you know I I, I don't want to smash anyone's uh, dreams here or or <laughs> uh, or you know our paradigms, but. It, it didn't come from you know Joseph's pen hidden in Emma's skirt to our three and one now. Right? <laughs> it didn't go that far. There were there were pieces, and after Joseph died, you know there were um, at least two committees, maybe more, that reviewed and put things together, and and I'm sure all that was on the up and up. But the the point uh, of of sharing that is that um, Joseph Smith. Um, well, so in in reading about this, I was reading in a book, and the book wasn't positive about Joseph Smith. It was putting him in a in a poor light, even though it was written by a church historian. And I'm I'm not taking sides with it at all, but you could you could hear kind of a snarky attitude towards Joseph Smith in this. But the and, and one of the points he makes is uh, shows in the first words of First Nephi in the original manuscript in handwritten uh, form, you see this word Jerusalem, but it's spelled, <laughs> and I, I guess this was Joseph Smith's spelling, um, lowercase G E R you and then hyphen, it was hyphenated and then capital S-A-L-E-M, you know, Jerusalem with a G with a hyphen in between. That's how Jerusalem was spelled. Now, most kids, by the time they've been, you know, uh, pre-baptismal class, they've heard of the name Jerusalem. And most kids, by the time they could read their uh, children's Bible, could probably pick out the word Jerusalem, right, and spell it like we all do in English. But uh, and that wasn't the way it was spelled in 1800s. You know, it was spelled you know the way we would think of now, especially with a capital J, not a lowercase g. But here, that this is the point. This is the point is that this is who we're dealing with. You know, God takes a, a farm boy whose dad literally scratches these the ground with a stick, right, to make a living. He was a farmer, right, mm-hmm. by by simple means, and he takes this farm boy in New York and gives him these plates that are written in an ancient language and he translates them. And so mercy and justice. So I'm going to jump into something in the book of Mormon and I want to tie this back to, to all this. So mercy and justice are two, not just ideas or words, but it's, it's two foundational understandings of God of scripture that are, described in the Book of Mormon better than any other Scripture we have. In fact, if you Scripture search the words mercy and justice, you aren't going to find them coupled together in the Bible anywhere, but you find them in the Book of Mormon in several places. And the Book of Mormon explains, as we've talked about in previous episodes, if uh, if, if you listen to some of our previous ones, I know we've touched on mercy and justice, the fact that justice is that we are all condemned to be separated from God because of sin. That is the law. The law of justice is that sinful things can't be in God's presence. And at the same time, God said, I want to have mercy and bring you back into my presence, but mercy cannot rob justice. That's one of the scriptures in the Book of Mormon. So in this understanding of mercy and justice, there are several places in the Book of Mormon, where this is explained, and it's explained beautifully how unless there was an atonement, the sacrifice of something eternal, we could not overcome the eternal verdict that mankind was cast out of God's presence. That's so mercy can take effect. Well, so how does this relate to, to all this stuff with the Hebrew stuff? Well, one of the things the Hebrews did was they would compare and contrast everything they could in a parallel way to convey meaning. So in doing some research about Hebrew poetry, I found that one of the ways they do that is to compare and contrast feminine and masculine. You know, his and her, for instance, are, that's one of the things that is done. But, um, but so, so God, even in himself, they would have different names for God to represent the different attributes. Well, this is something I just learned this week. One Hebrew word for God— was Elohim, okay, and, and you, you've heard that. But the root for the word Elohim comes from the word justice. Another name for God is Adonai, and the, and the Hebrews would use that because they felt like it was the name for God they could use because his real name was unknown, and if they did know it, they couldn't speak it, so they used Adonai. But Adonai comes from the root word in the Hebrew for mercy, so you have these two descriptions of God, Elohim and Adonai, which are justice and mercy. And and I know this is probably going to sound a little bit like a Sunday school class here, but but just to I'm enjoying okay. it, man. <laughs> well, <laughs> what, which so Elohim was was justice, justice, okay, and Adonai was mercy. And then so you, you'll you'll like this part. In the Hebrew, they do something that um, we don't do in English. But there are masculine and feminine verbs and nouns, for instance, mm-hmm. in, in their language. And those have to agree. The, the words they would use would have to agree. If you were talking about a masculine thing, you would have to use the right masculine descriptions, even though they wouldn't be obvious to us Almost in the translation. Almost like the
1: Spanish. Well, I know they the have Spanish do that? In, in, yeah, just what little I know. They have yeah. like the uh, the, some words are feminine, some words are masculine, and I could never right. And, mean, and
0: and German does the same. You have mm. der, die, das, you know, and you have to know if it's a masculine or a feminine. And so there's, but it's interesting because these other languages, you know, these European and modern languages, all have their roots back in some of these ancient languages, which which did this. But it's it's harder for us to understand this. And in fact, how would a young boy on the farm? Have understood this as well back in the 1800s. I mean, you could probably survey anyone on the street today and ask them what is the masculine word for God in the Bible and what is the feminine word. You know, they're like, "What are you talking about?" Right? Mm-hmm. So, um, so I, I learned that Elohim was the uh, of the f- masculine root for the word justice. And justice was a masculine word. And, and I've got some of the stuff, but I, it's not meaningful to discuss it on the podcast. It's something that when you see it in print, it becomes a little bit more amazing to, to look at visually. But in this same aspect, then mercy is the uh, a feminine word. And when the Book of Mormon presents God, it says, hey, you're going to end up on my right hand or my left hand the left hand is where justice is administered. The people who did not want their sin removed have to suffer the consequence of retaining sin eternally. That's justice. That's That's left, left hand. That's the left hand, right? right. We have the right hand and left hand of God. And all this is presented as parallels in the book of Mormon. And it even talks about, Hey, on the left hand, on the right hand, you have life and you have death. So the justice is where we would all end up on the left hand of God. And, The mercy is on the right hand of God. So that's where he says, hey, you're going to come stand on my right hand or on my left hand. You've either accepted justice, you know, punishment for your sin. He said, it's so bad. This is why I died because I don't want you to suffer it. Or you can have mercy, which is so good. You can't imagine your eyes have never seen. But so just to depart for a second. <clears throat> the the idea of feminine and masculine is very strong through the Hebrew, where, for instance, an, an another set of words, and, and they would use word pairs, in fact, as as a way to convey that's just another Hebrew poetic style, the pair words, ox and ass, for instance, they have their own meanings from the from the history of the word but words. But my um but my point is like, heaven was from a masculine Hebrew word, earth was from a feminine Hebrew word. Think about what happens in the garden. God creates man, the masculine, and the woman is created from him. Well, God lives in heaven, and he speaks this word, and he creates the earth. So the masculine of heaven created the feminine of earth. And what's supposed to happen someday? Well, there's this great marriage that all Scripture talks about that's represented in our individual lives by husband and wife coming together. This is why marriage can only be for a man and woman because they represent the two extremes or opposites coming together as one in this life. Just like this whole idea of God's kingdom coming to earth is heaven, the masculine, comes to earth, the feminine, and they become one. Heaven and earth come together. That's what Zion is. That's what the millennium is. And just like the scriptures prophesy of this marriage of the... The, the lamb the, the the groom Jesus and the marriage to the church which is always has always been portrayed as the bride so you have all these ideas of heaven and earth masculine and feminine being brought to us in multiple ways and th- and this is how the hebrews taught so mercy and justice when
1: i want yeah go ahead hold your thought right there i because people that may have not heard this before and, and I, just want to point out there uh, what you said about marriage between a man and a woman it has nothing to do with um, you know um, respecting people's rights or you know uh, feelings or let's love everybody it's because there is a story interwoven by our creator throughout everything and part of that story is man and woman in the relationship together and that that relationship, that way of procreating, that way of everything, and it's so many layers and so many different things to look at, brings us to the point where it has it has everything to do with our Creator and what He's trying to show us about Him, not, not whether we... Uh, you know all have equal rights or anything and that's yeah. that's the bigger that's the bigger story right. so when you try to argue or or you get stuck just on the most base level of well it's just not right or the bible says it's a sin it's so much deeper than it it's like let's look at the story of what God our creator is trying to show us exactly and so that was just one part of everything you're saying but i we, we went over that so fast and I know you've got other things on that but let, i just didn't want that to to slip by unless we just take a minute to pause and understand that lest we get pulled into the arguments going on today on right. just, you know, well, it says it's a sin. Well, there's much more to right. it. Right, and it's
0: like, you know, we, we need to actually let that go. exactly. And I'm glad you pointed that yeah. out because it's not so much that God was even worried that we wouldn't realize certain things that people do were sin, whether it was any act of fornication. Uh, for instance, the, the point is that there was a greater lesson behind all these teachings to teach us about higher things of him, of his, his design for us. And and so people who understood these uh, things of the way the the authors uh, communicated through the Hebrew would get those meanings because they realized that in itself was the, the point from the beginning, the, the higher lesson. So when... Um, well, one other thing, and it is, we're still going to continue towards mercy and justice, but I want to throw out something else. And again, I've been reading four or five books on this Hebrew poetry, which, again, is the ideas, how they conveyed ideas, ideas rhyming, if you will, versus words rhyming. And I and I found in the same study, you learn a lot about grammar, too, just about how the, the Hebrew, ancient Hebrew would learn grammar or, or would use grammar. Now, I have to qualify this. If if I lived in Israel today, I would be learning a modern form of Hebrew. Um, when the nation of Hebrew was reestablished in 1948 and in the late 1800s and early 1900s, um, people started gathering back to Israel who were of Jewish descent anyhow, and um, there wasn't a national language and Hebrew wasn't actually the national language. You would assume everyone would have still been speaking Hebrew wherever wherever they were at, but they weren't, they had assimilated into other cultures. They had learned other languages or they had learned their own derivations like Yiddish and stuff of combinations of Hebrew and German and things. And so a national language was reestablished and it's a much more modern language like ours. If I even was born in Israel right now and lived if I wanted to understand the nuance of ancient Hebrew, I'd have to go back to a university somewhere and be taught about it, even if it was part of my own culture, because it was that far removed from the way they spoke. Well, so here's one other piece of this, working back towards the mercy and the justice. Um, The way pronouns were used in Hebrew... um, what, what I love about this is you can find in these books where they talk about all these subtle aspects of Hebrew, and then you can go search in the Book of Mormon and start finding all these examples of it. And, you know, in the past, you know, I was like searching words like, you know, prophecy and Zion and last days and times of the Gentiles. That That's like a typical word search. But lately I've been searching words like his. Or did you know did or something mm-hmm. or 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 words? Um, well, to give you an example, uh, the the reason for this I think makes sense. Um, in the subtlety of the language, more authenticity comes to the surface. So, um, in the f- instance for um, a pronoun, his, her, theirs, that those are pronouns in an English language. They have pronouns in the Hebrew, but they're used differently. If I was in the eighth grade and got back uh, to Class After the summer and the teacher always gives you your English teacher, for instance, will give you an assignment. Hey, what'd you do this summer, Mike? Well, you say, well, I went swimming and I went kayaking and we went mountain climbing and then we, we rode horses and then we did all this. And then, and then you just kind of rode it and then we did this and then we did this and then we did this the teacher would send your paper back and say okay now you got to use some better rules of english language and you'd say rather than okay we went hiking and then okay we went swimming you would just say we went hiking swimming cli- kayaking climbing period right? right that's we we did it and then you name the things you did well in the hebrew they couldn't separate in the ancient hebrew the pronoun from the object, you know, like a sentence will have like a subject and then a verb, and sometimes there's an object of the verb. You know, we, you could say we ran, that would be, you know, the subject and the verb, but you could say an object we ran to the house. The house would be the object, right? Well, in the Hebrew, ancient Hebrew, I couldn't just say, for instance, if I was talking about Mike, I couldn't say his house and family and friends. I couldn't say that. I would have to say his house. His family and his friends—they don't allow the pronoun to be separated from the other words. You have to couple it with the word. Each That's time. otherwise it sounds funny, right? Okay. It, it's 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 it would sound funny to us if I if I said things differently. So the word "his" would have to be attached. Well, why am I saying this? Well, you start reading through the Book of Mormon. And you see all these beautiful examples of Hebrew grammar. For instance, when Lehi departs in the wilderness uh, in First Nephi, it says he left his house in the land of his inheritance, and his gold, and his silver, and his precious things. I'm reading right now from the Book of Mormon. We would just say he left his house, inheritance, gold, right, silver, and precious right. things. Let's clean it up. Let's let's shorten this. You and know. and that was it. exactly what when, when the you know 1966 the LDS Church thought. Hey, we're going to come out with a better version of the Book of Mormon they took out all those things. Right. What they took, right. mm -hmm. They took out this kind of stuff. They took out the Hebrewisms. They took out the proof of this, that it was the authentic work. And, and these things that come through, these are the rafters and the pink insulation we're talking about. here. Yeah. And you know, and one
1: man did a lot of work, bless his heart, Ray treat on trying to, he understood the significance of a lot of that Hebrew uh, poetry and things and, and just wanted to go back to the main manuscript and make sure that it was left in there and then reproduced a copy because, uh, I, I, you know, his foresight at some point, that's going to be important to
0: the Hebrew uh, culture to see it as, as such. Exactly. And things that they thought were, you know, here we go back to Jerusalem, G-E-R-S-U, uh, you know, hyphen A-N or whatever it was, Joseph Smith. They thought this was all Joseph Smith's, you know, dumb hick. Uh, his grammar, misspellings, all mm-hmm. the, his misspeeches. No, when you leave all those words in the way they were originally written, they make perfect sense in the Hebrew. So there's there's lots of examples of this. Uh, examples of, uh, for instance, uh, the, the pronoun thing. So you have Moroni, and I'm reading from Alma twenty-one forty-two in the RLDS version. Uh, he fastened on his headplate and his breastplate and his shields and girded on his armor about his loins. You know, that's just how they did it. The pronoun "his" had to be coupled with every object, and and they continue. You know, with Jesus, they thrust his hand, their hands into his side to feel the prince in his hands and in his feet. It keeps saying that, and and you know, many examples. Uh, they left the land of their inheritance and their gold and their silver and their precious things. That's First Nephi one thirty-eight. Or here's one, uh, they, they laid a tax of one-fifth of all they possessed, a fifth of their gold and of their silver, and a fifth of their ziff and their copper and their brass and their iron. You know, you, you see this, and it keep, keeps going. We would just say— If the copper, f- gold, brass— Was taxed, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. That's how we say it. But because they had to couple in the ancient the pronoun with the object, this is how it was written, and this is how it comes through in the translation. Now— if it was a pure Hebrew translation, not into English, some of these words may be ordered differently because sometimes they would put a verb in front of a subject versus a subject in front of a verb, or however we like to do things to our thinking. But but the point is the the authenticity of it the uh, it still comes through in this uh, in, in just these aspects of of grammar with just pronouns. So there's many examples of that. You can find a hundred of them uh, or more in the Book of Mormon. But the reason I'm sharing this is because, come back now to the mercy and justice. So Elohim was the masculine word of God. Adonai was the uh, feminine word for God. Justice was masculine. Mercy was feminine. They're all connected. So They represent the whole God. Jesus, you know, with his hands outstretched, you've got justice on one side, mercy on the other. But so in the Book of Mormon, when you come to a a beautiful verse, and this is kind of just all leading up to this verse, um, in the 19th chapter of Alma in the RLDS version, what's beautiful about this, and I think this came from a guy who was ridiculed for not knowing how to spell Jerusalem? Mm-hmm. But here's Alma 19106, talking about mercy and justice. Remember the whole of God. Thus they are restored into his presence to be judged according to their works, according to the law and justice. For behold, and here it is, justice exercises all his demands, and also mercy claimeth all which are her own isn't this amazing because it does everything right here it's like it's it's doing the the contrasting the justice and the mercy which are the whole of god or but but it even couples his knowing that justice is a masculine and then it uses the feminine of mercy all which are her own how would a young kid in new york in the 1800s have known this i mean the subtleties of the hebrew are all exposed in this the fact that justice was masculine mercy was was feminine but justice and mercy are the extremes of god and you either go one side or the other for eternity and it's it's like how 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 yeah exactly I mean, how that
1: <laughs> that is amazing i never even I never, I guess, in my mind because I'm of reading the Book of Mormon, I'm used to hearing that. And right. we, we look at man and woman, and I just think, Oh, a woman's kinder, she's more merciful, and a man is more vengeful, and I'm going to take justice on you, you know. And so, you see both attributes, and so I never really uh, considered. That, or I just went by was subliminally, but when you point it out like that, <laughs> read, read that again, <coughs> all the 19106,
0: that's what we'll put. Yeah, on. so for behold, justice exerciseth all his demands. All his demands. Right, and so here you have the pronoun his with justice, and mercy claimeth all which is her own, right? And it's like, how... Uh, how would someone have even known if they just wildly guessed? Because I found this by searching the word his and her after I'd found in a book on Hebrew poetry that sometimes gender is used as a parallel contrast. And when you're trying to contrast points, and here in one of the most profound understandings of salvation and the work of God, his justice and his mercy, which no book on earth explains like the Book of Mormon does but here then it even couples it with the with the gender and 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 contrasts it with the extremes and and it wraps it up so well it's like these people were inspired they they knew and they were everything that says they are
1: I remember uh, a few to, <laughs> a few uh, months back when you told me you you texted me one day and I think we we probably mentioned this on a podcast about the parallels you were seeing in the contrast and how it's like either or it's all either one way or the other and there's no There's no steps. There's no gray area. There's no in-betweens. And and how the Book of Mormon just testifies over and over on the parallels, you know, two churches, uh, mercy, justice, um, you know, light, darkness, right hand, left hand. um, And maybe we think that's just normal or happenstance or makes a good story, but that's that's really... um, That's something to know that there's all of those contrasts on one extreme or the other, really. Not a spectrum, but... So
0: it's interesting using that word parallel because the Hebrewism, if you look in a book, any book, and there are many out there, just Google search them if you want, and just search the words Hebrew poetry. What you're going to find every author says is the bottom line of Hebrew poetry is parallelism, trying to make parallel ideas come forth by comparing them or contrasting them, and it's done with many different methods. But what's interesting is that the Book of Mormon even uses the word parallel. It's like if it wasn't obvious enough, the authors bring it out using that word, which was the whole construct of how Hebrew authors thought, but the the word parallel exists nowhere in the Bible at all but yet it's in the book of Mormon and one of the most beautiful places we find it uh there's a there's a couple places but in the third book of Nephi chapter 11 um this this is you know when Jesus had been explaining to the people in, in his state uh, of salvation he states of this great and last day he said All kindreds, tongues, nations will stand before God to be judged of their works, whether they be good or whether they be evil. And so we have the comparison of good or evil. And now here's how it compares. And this is better to see on paper rather than hear it because the visual comparison of the parallelism helps drive the meaning home. But if they be good to the resurrection of everlasting life, that's the first statement. If they be evil to the resurrection of damnation. And then it says, being on a parallel. So we've got life and death, everlasting life or damnation. We've got good and evil, being on a parallel. The one on the one hand and the other on the other hand. So now they're compared to God's left and right hands, right? Uh, according to the mercy and justice, here the words are, the mercy and the justice, the holiness which is in Christ who was before the world began. What was that reference? That was... Third Nephi 11, verse 33 in the RLDS version. And so, I mean, it's like, oh, my gosh, we've got the ultimate parallels here, even using the word parallel, which was exactly the foundation Mm -hmm. by which the Hebrew authors conveyed meaning. And and now it's probably worth saying, too, that not every – Scripture or every verse in the Bible or the Book of Mormon is going to have evidence of Hebrew poetry. They didn't use it like that. It wasn't like, hey, you can't write it unless you use a parallelism. It's not the way it is. They, they, If they were just describing their day like, hey, we got up, we had breakfast, we went to church, we got home – They wouldn't use a parallelism or they wouldn't even go that far because it was reserved for things of importance that they were trying to teach. There's a difference. So you're not going to find a parallel or chiasm or anything in every verse of the Bible. And the same thing, you're not going to find it in every verse of the Book of Mormon. But where you find it is in the great sermons and the first person speaking, especially one of the most beautiful. And I can't say one's above the other, but you find it in um, King Benjamin's sermons in the first three chapters in the LDS version of the book of Mosiah. Every word, every phrase, every concept is presented in a beautiful Hebrew style. That's unlike anything else. Nephi's words are like this. You find Alma's doing this all the way through. And then you find the editor Mormon. He's, Skilled in this, even though he lives a thousand years after these guys, he understands the language. Oh, and then I just came across this. Um, so these ideas of uh, of uh, some of these ways that pronouns and things of grammar are spoken in the ancient language. So I'm just searching this on the internet trying to find examples of Hebrew examples of grammar so I can search and find them in the Book of Mormon. And then I find this example of Hebrew grammar where they say, this isn't used very often, but you can still find it. Uh, It's not used in the modern Hebrew, but you can still find it in the Hopi Indian language. Now, who who could could have guessed that examples of the way they order their words aren't found anywhere else in the world from the ancient Hebrew but yet you can find them in North American Indian culture still I mean unbelievable, <laughs> unbelievable. yeah exactly so I mean like I'm just overwhelmed by this and I'm like yeah I know this is the um, this is the pink insulation in the rafters and the wires behind the attic door in a sense. But my gosh, it's you know true.
1: though. But Corey, when when people try to, uh, you know, when when people in the church, especially our young people, and they start, you know, when they hear things that are negative, and you know, and there's going to be all, there's all kinds of things out there. Of course, there is. You know, whether it's King Follett sermon or this or that, or this is why we don't believe this, or Joseph did that. When you have these kind of things also in your mind. Then you say, "Yeah, but how do you explain this and that?" You know, and, and this is just so structurally sound. It's like, well, I'm going to have to choose to believe this is the word of God and that this was not a fabrication. Yeah, um, yeah. I just it has its place. It's very important and it's very intriguing. And to me, it just I don't know. It's like um, you know, it's like if Andrew Peterson released this great album, you know, and I loved it so much and I played it for years, and then I found out that he had three more albums. You know what? I just like no. I'm pretty good with this one. No, I want to hear everything <laughs> he's done. Yeah. I want
0: to see all that he's, all yeah. that he said, yeah. and all the stories he's told. Yeah. And
1: so, oh, this is this. Well, is, that's
0: a, that's a good point. I like that you brought that up because part of me, and and maybe I shouldn't do this, but <clears throat> you know what? You you bring up something really important for our day. And, and be aware that there are naysayers. Which I just found a website yesterday where some person took the time to take every verse of the book of Mormon and write in their own website called truth and grace. You can go there if you want. Um, they 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 list every verse of the Book of Mormon, and then they try to write a contrary thing against every verse for, for some reason. And the person who who wrote this website, bless their heart, um, I'm just right. going to call them an idiot. Actually, even though I never use that word, because they 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 aren't sound in their understanding. They're just taking potshots. And I and I don't mean to sound condescending towards someone, although it sure sounds condescending. But the point is, I would love to talk to some of these people now, not to debate them, but because I I want to I want to understand their heart because. What they do, they're so quick to try to assail the word that they miss the beauty of, and the authenticity, and they'll never see it when that's their heart and that's their mindset. But I look at this and I, I realize, you know, Moroni, when he's sealing this, this up, he writes in the Book of Mormon. In the end, he says, the Gentiles are going to get this and they're going to mock at our words. He said, "You made us powerful in speaking, but you didn't make us powerful in writing." And he compares it to the brother Jared. He said, "The words of the brother Jared were so powerful you couldn't stand in the, to, to read them. Mm. You had to sit down," and he said. And they knew the power of God beyond what we can experience in their in their word. He said, and, and, and the Lord's response to him is, he said, fools mock, but they will mourn. They will mourn. He said, my people will not be ashamed, he said, when they stand by me. And this is the beauty of this word is that I, I you know what, at this point, Mike, I'm actually to the point where if someone, and, and I don't feel this way, I'm just wanting to say, um... If someone wants to say, "Hey, Joseph Smith was a polygamist and he did this and he 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 was uh, a liar about all this," great. But let's look at the Book of Mormon because you can't. Th- this is unassailable. And and maybe he maybe he was a fraud and a charlatan. And I'm not saying that. I feel that way. But the point is, what people will say is, "Well." The Book of Mormon can't be true because Joseph Smith was this and this and this. That's how they always turn the argument. Right. That's what they always do. And then you know, people who do try to get into the Book of Mormon, they miss these points. They just fly right over them. All this this inner truth. Uh, you know, nowhere do you get this explanation of the law of Moses and how it pointed towards Jesus Christ. Nowhere do you get this explanation of justice and mercy and how anyone, no preachers of the day in the eighteen hundreds. Sidney and included, were preaching these messages. They did not have this understanding. And, and you don't get it anywhere but in the Book of Mormon. And so I look at this and I'm like, let's just look at what the Word says. And eventually, Mike, I fully believe there's going to be a people who— Despite all the fumblings and the stumblings of us Gentiles who receive this word and then try to say it was all about us and all about our church and come join our church, even though there's almost no evidence of us living a righteous or having a righteous environment, you know, we contend and we bicker and, and we're frustrated. It's the sign of the time of the Gentiles that would reject the gospel in the last days. We just have to suffer through it. This is our day to live. But eventually this pure word comes back to Israel and it becomes the standard.
1: Before we wrap up this episode, just tell me about, you mentioned this briefly, mercy and justice and how they are or aren't found together in the Bible in a plain
0: way, in a plain and precious way. Yeah, so, well, I mean, one of the things that I was a little frustrated with was I started just searching, you know, go to Restored Gospel or any of the ones you like to scripture search from the RLDS version, and I just typed in, Uh, Mercy and justice. And then if if you do use the uh, Restored Gospel website, you'll see recently there's an advanced search. Click on that. And because you can then search through the King James and LDS or choose whatever combination of scriptures you want. Inspired version with the LDS, King James with the Restored Covenant, whatever, you can do it. But so I would search mercy and justice in the King James version of the Bible. Those two words together There's only one place in Psalms, it's Psalm 89, where it says, justice and judgment are the habitation of thy throne. Mercy and truth shall go before thy face.
1: That's the only
0: place where they appear in a verse or even closely associated within verses. There's no explanation of what it means, the mercy and the justice. And In the Book of Mormon, search mercy and justice, and you're going to find... 30 scriptures probably that talk about how we were all in the grasp of justice. Justice was going to be our end. Save this merciful God comes and intervenes on our behalf. And he did it out of his love for us. And that's the beautiful message that explains grace. And it explains, um, you know, salvation in, in a way that's not done anywhere else.
1: You know, we've got a, we're going to be working on it and we're in the middle of working on a project. And we hope to have going here soon, but uh, we've mentioned a couple of times, what does the Book of Mormon teach? And in and, and First Nephi, the third chapter, very early on in the book, it talks about the plain and precious truths being removed. And, uh, and so I started, I thought, what a great place to start. Why, why the Book of Mormon? Why is it important? Why should anyone give time to reading it? Well, it says there that many plain and precious parts of the gospel were removed from what we would say would be the Bible you're only seeing mercy and justice one time. How very, <laughs> very rare. It's very rare. And and yet in the Book of Mormon, it's there. And so it's very plain, not saying that the Bible and you read the Bible, that you can't see those characters of God, that you can't see that he's merciful at times and that, that he is a just God. But when you read it together, and then they add all of the other things in with it to help you understand, very plain. It's very plain. Yeah. And so, um, the Word of God is precious, and I think I said about the Word of God is precious because it is rare, and and in this world, you you can just see that for yourself. Yeah. In all of the uh, spirits that are in this world. Calling out to you, confronting all of your senses while you're in the flesh, the Spirit of God is very rare. It yes. is very rare, and you have to seek it out. You know, um, um, the kingdom of God, the Word of God, very, very precious and rare, and we have to seek it out. And so, when you have a book that brings that out so plainly, but I thought that was a good reminder just at the very end that as you look in the Bible, we're not saying the Book of Mormon's uh, better or that you don't need the Bible at all, but but we are speaking to the plain and precious truths that have, like you said, the Book of Mormon, you know, the inspired version didn't just come from Joseph's pen to to our three and one in our hands. Through Emma skirt. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so now think about, Um, the Bible in all of the manuscripts, uh, my son and I were talking this morning about, uh, how the scribes would painstakingly, you know, write. You know, there's one copy and they would write and they would copy all of the letters by hand. There were no Mm -hmm, copy machines. mm -hmm. And then they would have two copies and then they would copy those. And that's how the, that's how it went forth. Right. If you think that nothing got changed or someone's perspective didn't enter in or is, uh, I know there is a, a school of thought among evangelicals that, um, you know like it was this golden thing that just came down an unerrant word of god you know well it was went
0: through the hands of men right right and and, and and even the hebrew scholars won't say this is unerrant they know that story that you just said how it changed they know better than anyone how it changed
1: let's get in Maybe next time we can get into some of that about—you uh, told me about this writing where, you know, oh, Joseph just copied the whole King. Oh, thing. yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll yeah. get into that. Here, here's,
0: a, here's a little teaser then because my mind was going there and you mentioned it. So one of the other things the naysayers of the Book of Mormon will say, even a church historian in the RLS Church wrote a book about the scriptures and just said he used the word filler material. He said, oh, Joseph and Sidney just, just copied from the King James, especially Isaiah, for filler material— One third of Isaiah's writings are in the Book of Mormon. We'll have a lot to say about this. But what's interesting, I've started doing a comparison verse by verse by verse. There are single words or phrases that are actually different in over 70% of the verses from Isaiah that are not from the King that are that exist in the King James, but they are worded differently in the Book of Mormon. And when you look at those differences that exist in the Book of Mormon, see the naysayers just say, oh, he copied it. No, they're all different. And the differences put the hebrew poetry back perfectly
1: until next time Corey. we are what just walking each other home mm-hmm. god bless my friends until next time Amen.